Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College. Its annual Summer Institute for Educators takes place June 25th through 27th. Registration is now open at landmark.edu slash LCSI. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Welcome to MindShift, where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Kara Newhouse. And I'm Nima Gobier. Nima, do you consider yourself an introvert or an extrovert? Do you get your energy from solo time, or do you get a buzz from parties and group outings? I'm definitely an introvert. How did that affect you in school? It was a little stressful. My heart rate would jump when I was called on in class. And there were many times that I'd know the answer to a question, and I just wouldn't raise my hand to say it out loud. Those are pretty normal reactions for introverts. So that's what we'll talk about today. In this episode, we'll explore how teachers can set up class discussions to invite participation from all students. Also, we'll learn how to reimagine student engagement so it doesn't just mean talking a lot. A third to a half of the population are introverts. A third to a half. So that's one out of every two or three people you know. Listeners might have heard author Susan Cain talk about introverts. She wrote the book Quiet, and she gave a viral TED Talk in 2012. So extroverts really crave large amounts of stimulation, whereas introverts feel that they're most alive and they're most switched on and they're most capable when they're in quieter, more low-key environments. Not all the time, you know, these things are an absolute, but a lot of the time. These concepts weren't very well known back then, but it seems like a lot more people have learned about introverts since that TED Talk. But at the same time, in schools, teachers have been shifting toward what's called student-centered learning. In this model, teachers spend less time lecturing, and students are expected to take the lead in the learning process, which often means students have to do a lot of talking. So where do introverts fit into student-centered learning? We'll get to that after the break. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. There's a teacher who has done a lot of thinking about introverts and where they fit into student-centered learning. My name is Brett Vogelsinger. I'm a ninth grade English teacher at Holocaust Middle School in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Mr. Vogelsinger is an extrovert. In high school, he was always ready to raise his hand and speak up. So when he became a teacher, he thought that's just what it meant to be a good student. That idea would definitely leave me out of the good student category. It would leave out a lot of students. And Mr. Vogelsinger recognizes this. He's brutally honest about that flaw in how he used to think. I, w- I would even see a student in an honors class who wasn't super participatory, and I'd think to myself, what are they doing in an honors class? They don't seem that into English class. I don't really like that I thought that, but I did. So, Kara, what changed? Well, for one thing, he married an introvert. Seeing the differences between him and his wife made him realize... Introversion is not about being quiet, shy, or reserved. It's about feeling recharged and energized by quiet time, reflective time. And that's really, really valuable. And in English class, that's really valuable. And in learning, that's really valuable. He also began to notice that some of the most striking writing assignments came from students he rarely heard from in class. Over time, he started to see student participation in a new light. It took me a while to realize that someone can engage rigorously, mentally, with what's going on in the classroom, and you might not hear it as a teacher. So then how do we make that learning visible? How do we give them chances to share what they're learning? Kara, it sounds like Mr. Vogelsinger was demonstrating intellectual humility and how he viewed introverts. That's really helpful for teachers' growth. True. I went to Pennsylvania to see how he goes about engaging introverted students. I'm going to share two of his strategies with you. Are you ready? I'm ready. Like most English classrooms, Mr. Vogelsinger's room is lined with bookshelves. There are also literary-themed artworks on the walls and grammar jokes on the whiteboard. Okay, there's a belt there. On this spring day, as students walk in, they find yellow and white index cards on each desk. Those will be used a little later. First, there's some of the usual classroom startup. Attendance, reminders about an upcoming assignment. Then it's time for the main feature, a discussion of one of the themes in Romeo and Juliet, fate versus decision-making. I want to give you a couple minutes to look at the message board. To look at the message board. And you can even write a little response to a friend if you think some of their thinking is great. I'm going to ask you to write a response to one This is the first detail to notice. Mr. Vogelsinger gives his students think time before large group discussions. In this case, 
they had already responded to a message board about the topic. Letting them review what they wrote and read their peers' responses meant that introverted students weren't being put on the spot when they started talking. We're going to have a whole discussion today about the tension between fortune and fate and luck in Romeo and Juliet and characters' decisions, good, bad, or otherwise, in the play, and the tension that Shakespeare creates between the two. Now here's where those yellow and white index cards on the desks come into play. This is a discussion style called White Snow, Yellow Snow. Just a reminder, white snow means you have a fresh new idea no one's brought up yet, and yellow means you're building, someone's been there already, you're building on uh, their ideas a little bit, uh, just like yellow snow means someone's been there uh, before. So take a moment and have those cards ready, because I do want to make sure that I don't miss somebody's thinking that connects to someone else's thinking. It helps me just keep track of the flow of conversation a little bit. Several students raised their white index card to kick things off. Um, go ahead, I have a new point. Um, I feel like it's like, like for Juliet, it's like more like luck for her, but like for Romeo, like what does he expect like he's gonna fall? This isn't the first time these ninth graders have done a white snow, yellow snow discussion. As they listen to each other speak, they shuffle between which card they have raised, depending on where the conversation is at and what they want to say. It sounds like our conversation started to center around Romeo. Good, so I see a lot of people following up with the yellow cards. Uh, go ahead, let's hear your thought, Romero. I think it's, uh, I think both points can kind of like, uh, I think both luck and decisions kind of The cards also provide pivot points for Mr. Vogelsinger as a facilitator. When one idea has been discussed for a bit, he calls on a student holding up a white card. Joe, take us in a new direction. Um, I must think that they like the idea that they're not supposed to like each other and it makes it even more interesting because they know that there's going to be repercussions because obviously their families have had a long hatred for each other. And they almost like the idea of like going behind each other. Kara, did most of the students participate? I heard a wide range of voices in both periods where I saw the white snow, yellow snow discussion. Thinking about introverts, there was one moment that stood out to me. Tell me about it. This is in first period. We're 12 minutes into the discussion, so about halfway through. Students have already identified a bunch of ways that the characters in Romeo and Juliet brought the tragic ending on themselves. Mr. Vogelsinger asked them to consider what elements were out of the character's control. I see one student tentatively raise a yellow card, the one they use to build on each other's ideas. She doesn't hold it the whole way up at first, but after another student speaks, she raises it higher. Yeah. Um, you can also consider it fate that he met Juliet because he originally went there for Rosalind. Right. That's sort of a twist that, we did, that he could control and didn't expect to happen or didn't try to make happen. Um, think about I wondered if this student would have spoken up without having the different cards to raise. After class, Mr. Vogelsinger talked about the exercise. It definitely gets more people talking, um, so the quantities of people go up. Plus, it just it interests them a little more. So like, instead of just raising a hand, which you're doing all day, now you have this other element, and you have to think about how it connects to other things with the white snow, yellow snow. So that's discussion strategy number one, white snow, yellow snow. Guys, um, thank you so much for your conversation today and the discussion. Leave the yellow and white cards on the desk. Use them really well. Um, I will see you on Monday. And of course, you have. Uh, oh, if anyone. Nima, are you ready to hear discussion strategy number two? Let's do it. This is during Mr. Vogelsinger's third period class. That's right before lunch. So this group of students is a little more antsy and in need of movement. Mr. Vogelsinger asks everyone to get out a blank piece of paper and write their answers to one question. We've been studying dramatic irony. 
we know things the characters don't know. If you could tell one character one thing that might fix this whole play, what would it be? Take maybe four minutes to write that and look over the message boards. We're ready to talk a little bit more as a class. Mr. Vogelsinger sets a timer, and when the timer dings... I want you to take your response, make sure your name is on the top of it, and then crumble it up into a paper ball that's going to sit on your desk. So now each student has a crumpled piece of paper at their desk. At the front of the room, there's a blue plastic crate on top of a podium. The discussion gets going. I would tell Romeo that there's more fish in the sea and not to get some so hungover over like a chick, you know. And after a few minutes, Mr. Vogelsinger pauses the discussion. Now, anyone who spoke so far gets a chance to throw their crumpled paper ball into the basket. No one fire till I'm out of the way. And then when I'm out of the way, if you've participated thus far, you can stand and try to take a shot. Go ahead. The class gets through three rounds of this basketball-style discussion before lunch. And most of the class did join in. In fact, as they head out the door to lunch, I hear one student saying to another, I actually participated today. But shooting the basket isn't the part that's specifically designed for introverts. Remember, those paper balls that they were shooting already had their written response to Mr. Vogelsinger's initial question. He collects those papers from anyone who didn't shoot a basket that day. That's all I have for you. Thanks, guys. After class, he reads through them. This is something that didn't come up in the verbal conversation in class. I would tell Romeo that Lady Capulet is sending an assassin after him. That didn't come up in the regular discussion because she's going to send someone with poison, she says, to Mantua to kill him. So, I mean, that was a, a great observation that I kind of wish would have come up in class. But I can still respond to the student now this way. I asked if the students who didn't speak are usually quieter in class. All three of them, yes. Yeah. But in a normal, in just a regular classroom conversation, I wouldn't have had anything from them. So I wouldn't have known they had these thoughts. So, Nima, what do you think? Would you have been comfortable raising your hand in one of these discussions? I think I would have been more likely to chime in, Kara. We've heard two discussion formats Mr. Vogelsinger uses to invite introverts to participate in class. But helping introverted students thrive isn't just about finding ways for them to talk more. One researcher I spoke with said participation is just one element on a spectrum of student engagement. As teachers, we know that there's a difference between being engaged and being really engaged, even if we didn't have, you know, quite a good language for it. That's Amy Berry. She's a researcher with the Australian Council for Educational Research. She's also the author of a book called Reimagining Student Engagement. And she developed a continuum of student engagement. So what does that continuum look like? Imagine me drawing a horizontal line on a whiteboard. On the left, you have active disengagement. On the right, you have active engagement. Actively disengaged on the left, actively engaged on the right. Got it. 
Participation, as in raising your hand or answering questions when called on, that's more in the middle of the engagement continuum. Dr. Barry considers it a passive form of engagement. Like it's just checking the boxes. Right. And in the more active forms of engagement, students are really invested in learning and doing things to dive deeper. Things like seeking feedback to help them improve. Things like looking for ways to collaborate with other people uh, to help them learn more and achieve more. Is this continuum model making its way to teachers? It is. Dr. Barry has heard from a lot of folks using the continuum. And like any pedagogical tool, application can vary. So while she hears a lot of good ways it's being used, she does worry when she hears that the continuum has just been printed out and hung up in a staff room, or when it's being used solely to evaluate student engagement. She said to be powerful, students also need to understand the engagement continuum. Its real value comes when you understand that engagement needs to be a partnership between the learner and the teacher. What does it look like when you have that partnership? For that question, let's meet another English teacher, Rebecca O'Dell. She teaches at a private middle school in Richmond, Virginia, and she came across Amy Berry's engagement continuum on Twitter. I thought, oh my goodness, this is what my students need. Because I've tried lots of different ways of quantifying um, their participation or helping them reflect on their participation. But participation isn't really what I wanted. I wanted investment. She took the continuum to her classes, displayed it on the whiteboard. And I said, let's brainstorm, knowing our routines, knowing our habits in this class in particular. What does each level of engagement look like in this room when you're here? Underneath each of Amy Berry's categories, Mrs. O'Dell's students described what that looked like in English class. On the disengaged side, for instance, her seventh graders listed things like playing games on their laptop or taking too many bathroom breaks. On the engaged side of the continuum, they wrote, taking copious notes, asking questions inside your own head while you're listening to other people discuss, asking questions that you're gonna follow up on later to get more information. Taking notes, asking questions in your own head, asking follow-up questions. Nima, what do you notice about those things? They're all things that introverts are great at. Mrs. O'Dell noticed that too. I think the engagement continuum really honors what engaged but introverted students are doing in our classrooms, which is often less visible than the students whose hand is up every minute. Mrs. O'Dell did this activity a few months into the school year. By then, her students knew their class routines well enough to think concretely about their own behaviors when they were really into the day's topic versus when they weren't. And how did that carry into the rest of the year? These ideas became a shared language for Mrs. O'Dell and her students. She also brought these ideas back throughout the year in an exit ticket she created. So this was a Google form that students filled out every so often at the end of class. And I would ask them, where did you spend the most of class today on that continuum of those six levels? Where were you most of the time? What showed that? Um, And why do you think that is? It's important to know that the exit tickets weren't tied to grades or any kind of evaluation. The responses did two things. First, they taught Mrs. O'Dell about ways her students were engaged that she wouldn't have known about, like doodling. A lot of teachers might see a student sketching in class and think they're not paying attention. 
But in those exit tickets, Mrs. O'Dell's students told her that they were processing what they learned by doodling. And so there are a lot of times that I noticed this year that students who not only didn't sound engaged, but they didn't look engaged, maybe they even looked bored, were able to tell me that they were engaging in ways I hadn't expected and engaging in ways that were really personal to them. The second thing the exit tickets did was make it easier to talk with students when they were disengaged and find ways to help them connect again. We also found ourselves sort of talking about a roller coaster of engagement. <laughs> you know, it's it's not consistent. It's not one and done. It's not like, well, now I'm an invested student, so I am investing every day forever. But I think it helped us reset. You know, when, when a student would have an off day and we could have a conversation or they could do a little bit of self-reflection and self-assessment, then it was easier to get back on track the next day and say, okay, new day, new level of engagement. Where do I want to be today and how am I going to get there? It sounds like using that continuum allowed every day to be a clean slate. Everyone needs that sometimes. And you know, the engagement exit tickets remind me of another practice from Mr. Vogelsinger back at Holocong Middle School that I haven't mentioned yet. What is it? A few years ago, he and the other freshman English teachers developed a self-reflection that students do quarterly. It covers a bunch of topics related to their academic work, and one of the questions is... Engagement and participation are vital to success, but can look different to different students. Explain how you participate and engage in class. It seems like reflecting on that question would be valuable to all students, not just introverts. Their answers might be different, but introverted and extroverted students can learn a lot by thinking about what they do when they're really engaged in learning. When I was in school, I knew that I felt nervous raising my hand, but I was never asked what else I was doing to drive my learning. Hopefully, by asking those kinds of questions and incorporating the answers into lesson plans, teachers will spark new ideas for engaging all students and help students discover that they, too, have control over their learning. A big thank you to Brett Vogelsinger and all his students in first, second, and third period English. Thanks also to Amy Berry, Rebecca O'Dell, and Miriam Plotinsky. The MindShift team includes me, Kara Newhouse, Nima Gobir, Ki Sung, and Marlena Jackson-Rotondo. Our editor is Chris Hambrick. Seth Samuel is our sound designer. Jen Chien is KQED's director of podcasts. Katie Springer is podcast operations manager. Audience engagement support from Cesar Saldana. Holly Kernan is KQED's chief content officer. MindShift's Intellectual Humility series is supported by the Greater Good Science Center's Expanding Awareness of the Science of Intellectual Humility Project and the Templeton Foundation. MindShift is also supported in part by the generosity of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and members of KQED. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.